Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Well, here we are again. I'm back. Been here all day. It was me and Brayton from 10 until noon. It was me and Nate from... Noon until 2, then Nate took the uh, final hour there, from 2 to 3. Then I was chiming in a little bit with Sal and uh, Mike Shope throughout the day, 3 to 7. And now it's just me for the next two hours, as I lead you into July 4th, the 4th of July. No one says July 4th. The 4th of July tomorrow, and uh, I just want to take a quick opportunity here to remind everybody that Team USA Hockey is... Better than it ever has been, but we can't watch it because the NHL will not put them uh, or put allow them to play in any tournaments or hold any tournaments of their own to where they can prove it to uh, the likes of Team Canada. 803 is the phone number if you got any thoughts on anything that we're touching on tonight. Uh, nothing new on the Sabres, really. Free agency has kind of hit a lull. I don't think there was any signings around the league today. There are still names on the free agent market, the same ones that we've mentioned throughout the past few days. Brian Boyle, Marcus Johansson, Michael Furland, uh, etc. Those Jake Gardner, guys are still on the market. There was a rumor today that the Sabres were in on Jake Gardner that was completely fake. It probably shouldn't have even brought it up there. Um, so to anyone's knowledge that knows anything, the Sabres are not in on Jake Gardner. Nor should I think they should be. What did uh, Nate do? So I left for about an hour from two at two o'clock and he launched into I guess something about how the bun is the mo- the most important part of the burger which is complete and utter nonsense think of it this way and I've had people tweeting me about this, this is how I found out people mistake me and Nate uh, for having each other's voice a lot so some people thought that this was me saying this and it was not me the the bun is not the most important part. It's definitely vital, but I can get away with a burger without a bun easier than I can get away with a burger without a patty, I think. You take the bun away from the burger, I've still got the burger. i still got the meat. You know, put it on a bed of lettuce, I don't know, and, uh, and tomatoes, I don't know. Maybe it qualifies as a salad at that point. Although I would think if the burger, the, the burger patty is still whole, it wouldn't be. The bun... You take the patty away, and I'm just, I'm eating. It's not a burger anymore. It's not even close. It's bread and lettuce and tomato and mayo and whatever you usually put on it. Mustard, ketchup. Oh, disgusting. Unedible. Edible without the bun. Unedible, I think, without the burger. So to say that the bun is the most important part is is nuts, I think. It is one of them. It's second. But the meat is certainly the most important you could have the best bun in the world, a nice brioche, uh, nice and fresh, just delicious. You don't even need to toast it. Just, oh, stupendous. Maybe you're into the pretzel bun game. 
I, I, I like to dabble in the pretzel buns uh, once in a while. They're good. You get a really good one of those, nice and fresh. It's delicious. You can eat it on your... You could, you could eat it on its own. But how good is a burger with the best bun in the world if you've got just the driest, just most poorly cooked uh, uh, meat in the middle? It's, just, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So I thoroughly disagree with uh, with my with my uh, partner Nate Geary from earlier today that that that's uh, that the bun is better. Anyways, it's a beautiful day out. July fourth is going to be beautiful, probably weather wise. I, I saw pictures at the Bison's game. It looks like a hell of a time right now. Uh, perfect weather for some baseball. Just chillax, sit back. I'm not a baseball guy. That's why I'm not there. Also, I'm here with you, but looks like a good time. They had a doubleheader today. The weather looks perfect, and uh, it makes me really just want to, you know, sit by a lake for the next 24 hours, which I do plan on doing uh, once I'm out of here at nine o'clock. Um, the fourth, you know, it's it's a good holiday. It's even a very good holiday. It's not an elite holiday to me though. Patriotic, uh, American independence, of course. You've got all of that, but just looking at the day itself, it's basically a poor man's Memorial Day, in my mind, because you get all the the the, the good stuff that comes with summer and warm weather and nice weather and barbecuing and lawn games, like some can jam, um, maybe some fr- just frisbee in general. What are the, what's the other one? The uh, I can't think of it. Oh, uh, cornhole. Duh. Cornhole. You got all that going on. That's nice. It's fun. But I'm not a big fireworks guy. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a big fireworks guy. How long have fireworks been around? They are ancient. Like the Ming Dynasty in, in ancient China had fireworks. And it feels like we've never had any real development in fireworks. If you're a Seinfeld fan out there, there's a bit on Seinfeld that George gets upset because there's never any uh, advancements in toilet paper. Like toilet paper, there's been nothing. No new colors, no new shapes, no new ways of doing it. It's just, that's it. They invented it and it just stayed the same. Fireworks to me, you know, you're there for the aesthetic pleasing of it. And we've had really no advancements. They got, a, a couple of them are a little louder. A couple of them shoot out a little bit quicker. But, I don't know, man. I feel like you put a man on the moon. And we're, we've yet to really, I think, take off when it comes to development of fireworks. We get the same old, same old. So I'm not a big fan of the whole fireworks show. And it's kind of an obligation. And I don't like obligations on holidays. Don't like it. It's still a top five holiday in my mind. But it's no Memorial Day. And it's no, I'm a big Thanksgiving guy. I know there's lots of obligations there, but they ha- that Thanksgiving has its other perks that really no other holiday can compete with. Whereas, you know, July 4th, it's, it's kind of similar to a couple of other holidays. It's not really unique. It's a little unique in that it's the, more pa- it's the most patriotic of any of the holidays, but I don't know. I don't mean to be bad-mouthing July 4th, which I kind of just did because uh, I'm very excited for tomorrow, but nah. Memorial Day, better. I don't even think it's disputable. Um, while we're on the topic of USA, the U.S. women's soccer team, 
is on to the finals. They won yesterday. They're going to play the Netherlands. The Netherlands won in the FIFA uh, Women's World Cup today. So they will uh, they'll play Team USA on Sunday. And there's been a lot of controversy uh, controversy surrounding the team this uh, this go round. It's Megan Rapino getting into it with the president. It's um, Alex Morgan and other players being criticized for going too far with their celebrations. And to me, like this is, it's funny. Their success to me is not, I guess, evidence that we've come a long way in women's sports. I kind of think that the the evidence of that is the people criticizing them for the celebrations. That does not happen to a sport where you're just kind of like you're there for the for the novelty of it. You're not really into it. Whereas like now we actually know the players. Like there are star players and I I heard uh, Abby Wambach, who's one of the, the legendary players who doesn't play on the team anymore. And early in the tournament, it was right after Thailand, where they won 13-0 and they were celebrating after like every single goal, even when they were up 11-12, 13-0. And reading more about that Thailand team, by the way, they almost didn't just, they did not deserve to be in that tournament. Like That tournament needs to be a smaller pool of teams. Thailand, I read, had maybe a month of practice with each other. And in large part, those those ladies hadn't played together. So, and the U.S. is like this juggernaut program. Then they're all playing professionally. They all know each other. They've been playing together for years. So they they weren't even in the same league yet. Here, where they were celebrating all the time. And I'm not here to criticize them for that. I'm here to point out the fact they're getting criticized for it. Like now we've made it. Now they've made it. Because that doesn't happen on. In the WNBA that I hear, that I see, it's just not on a big enough stage. It's not on, it doesn't register enough nationally for that to ever be a story, how they're celebrating. And we have that now. And today, uh, yesterday, same thing. They score against England. Alex Morgan, who I thought was a, it was a pretty sick celebration. You're, you're playing England. You know, it should be a rivalry. More so in women's soccer. Men's, I mean, the English would crush us most of the time. Um, I know they did beat them in the World Cup, I think, a couple times ago. Or maybe Drew. And Alex Morgan scores a goal. Very important one. And she sips the tea. Perfect. It's it's an absolutely perfect celebration. Perfect. And here are... Not, not as many, I would guess, as against Thailand. But here are all these people ready to jump down on the team for, oh, you're celebrating too much. Like, act like a professional. Act like you've been there. And if you're hearing act like you've been there, you've made it. Now we're talking about a team that is actually registering on the national landscape. And even though they're not pulling in the same amount of money as the U.S. men, this is the kind of tournament that I think when you have all these issues with fair pay, fair uh, pay and uh, the pay scale in comparison to the men. This tournament, I think, has made a very strong case to anybody that still doubts that that should that should happen. Megan Rapinoe, um, 
of the U.S. team. She did not play yesterday with a hamstring injury. Some people thought there might have been more to that, but it seems it was just a hamstring injury. Uh, here was her comments on the whole uh, celebrating stuff. That's Megan Rapino, and to me, it's almost a shame, by the way, that like it's, everyone seems to be pretty into this tournament, at least that I talk to. Like Sports fans are into this tournament. As baseball has... As, as their popularity has gone further and further down over the years, to me, maybe the sport that's gained popularity as much as anybody, except maybe basketball, because basketball has been rising a lot in the last few years, is been, has been soccer. And maybe that's in part because soccer, these big international tournaments, are taking place where their only competition is baseball. And if you're only going up against Major League Baseball, that's not a whole lot of competition these days, especially with young people. So friends of mine, people that I work with here, like everyone's pretty much into this tournament. And to me, it's a shame that FIFA only has both the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup once every four years. I know they're not, their job is not to market soccer to the United States. It's not. But if it was... And they should think about it at least to a little bit because there's a lot of money to be made, obviously, in the United States when it comes to sports. And if you seriously wanted to help grow the sport in the country that pays attention to sports more than anyone else in the world and help it grow there, you need to have the tournament more often. Both of them. They should rotate every other year. Women's World Cup one year, men's the next, back to women's, back to men's. No years in between. Because as it stands right now, what's it been? Three years since the last FIFA Men's World Cup? Or was it or last year? Last year was the was the World Cup. The US weren't in it. That's kind of why I, I didn't even think about it. Um, so you've got two more years. You got two years coming up of nothing when it comes to big international tournaments. You'll have the Euro which is only the men's for the European uh, countries, but that only, to me, can only get so much uh, viewership. Have a World Cup every year. Women's and men's. Rotate. I think that would really do a lot to growing the sport in this country. And like I said, it's not FIFA's main objective, but it should be one of their objectives. And maybe that would help with the whole host nation issues. Right? They put so much on these host nations to build stadiums and build roads and build infrastructure that can allow the World Cup to go there. Brazil had this. And that's partially for the Olympics, too. South Africa had this uh, nine years ago. Qatar, who's going to host the World Cup in a couple of years. It's disgusting how those stadiums have been built, essentially on almost modern slave labor, like they, they bring in uh, workers from other countries and don't let them leave, basically taking away their freedoms once they're there. It's a great E60 story uh, on how the World Cup is basically being presented there, or how is it's being built there. And the moment that tournament is over in Qatar in three years, those stadiums will be almost utterly useless again, just like it has in previous countries. Maybe if you did do it, Every year, women's and men's. Then maybe, you know, there's not as much pressure because you are you have more host cities, you have more host nations. You, you, these places don't have to make as strong a pitch. You know what I mean? Like, 
if the U.S. not the U.S. the U.S. is a bad example for that. For Qatar, if Qatar really wanted to have a World Cup, well, now they have twice as many to win. They have twice as many possibilities that they can go for that they can host. And suddenly, I don't think they have to make as strong a pitch because, hey, if we don't get it in 2022, no big deal because there's another one in 2024. We don't have to wait 10 years until 2026. Now, FIFA might not want to do that. I can see because that would take some leverage away from them from getting these giant stadiums built and basically being able to hold these cities hostage that want to host. But it's something that should happen. And as corrupt as FIFA is, I wouldn't expect it. Um, there's a lot of stories on how corrupt FIFA is. But to me, that's like that's how you grow soccer in this country. And that is how you would grow women's soccer too. Which is easily, I think right now, the, the, the women's sport that people pay the most attention to. Because of the success of the national team. And... It's not just the, it's not just soccer, but if you want women's sports to grow more and more, that's the team to help that process along. And it's tough when they're only playing in the biggest stage that they can play in once every four years. 8030550 is the phone number. That game, by the way, the final, United States versus Netherlands in the FIFA Women's World Cup final in France is going to be Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Got to love your morning sports, so that's going to happen on Sunday uh, at 11 8030550 is the phone number if you got any thoughts on that. We're going to switch into the Bills, though, when we come back. We've had a lot of uh, talk about the uh, different positions on the offense today. And I want to get into that a little bit. Joe Marino joined me and Nate earlier today. We'll get into that as well. 8030550 is the phone number. It is the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase. Happy 4th of July here on WGR. Welcome back. Still waiting on Kawhi Leonard. How are we still waiting on Kawhi Leonard? Three days in. Although, it seems we're getting closer to a decision. Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN, says that uh, he expects a decision to be somewhere between tonight and the morning of uh, July 4th tomorrow. So, I think it's probably going to be the Raptors. Amazing, the the TV coverage in Toronto today. It It was like the OJ chase. There's a plane that's going to land in Toronto, and everyone's freaking out. It's, oh, it's the Maple Leafs plane, Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, who owns the Raptors. Uh, their, their private jet's coming in. Oh, could Kawhi be on board? Because it's coming from LAX in LA. And they get off the plane, and there's a news helicopter flying above, which I can't even believe is legal. I think that, isn't there supposed to be some airspace kind of law uh, above an airport? But they were there. The helicopter was there, and they got camera footage of Kawhi. It seemed like it was Kawhi getting off of the plane and into a black SUV. Um, So it's believed that he's meeting with the Raptors in Toronto, and I'd have to think that if you're flying to Toronto to meet with the Raptors instead of them coming to you in L.A., then I think that probably means you're doing that because you are going to sign. So I would want to bet heavily right now that it's going to be the Raptors. And, you know, fine. I talked about this yesterday a lot. The competitive balance of the league is at jeopardy right now. You just got out of the Warriors basically ruining the competitive balance and ruining any parity in the league by having a nearly perfect starting lineup that you just knew they were going to win. And here we go. We're finally setting ourselves up for another year where I know the Raptors won last year, but it was mainly because of injuries to the Warriors. Now you're setting yourself up where, okay, the Lakers could win. The 
The Warriors could still win. The Nets could win if Durant comes back in the playoffs. The Celtics, the Raptors, the Sixers. There's like seven, eight teams that can conceivably win it. And if he goes to the Lakers, that's all over. It's all over. We are back to where we've been. We are back to one team that should win it, and if they don't, it'll be a surprise. And that's no place I think you want to be as a sports league, even though there would be a curiosity factor, at least in the first year, of, okay, how are these three amazing players going to look together? I get it. I would be interested in that. But then you hit years two and years three, and you maybe year four, and it's like, all right, enough already. We, like, we want to see something else. We want to see something different. And the one thing I am appreciative of the NBA um, is that, you know, they they really have it where these dynasties come and go, but they don't last very long, right? The Heat showed up, or before that even, the Celtics, they're big three. It's like, oh, this team's going to run the league, and they won in their first year, and they didn't again, and they were broken up within three, four years. And then the Heat got put together with LeBron, Chris Bosh, and uh, Dwayne Wade, and they're going to run the league. They're not five, not six, not seven. They're going to win a decade of championships, and there you go, four years, it's over. It's like that. Four years ain't that long. And then the Warriors, too. They're going to run the league for the rest of their careers. Ten more years. And three years later, Durant leaves. uh, uh, Clay Thompson's injured, and it's over. So even if the Lakers did get put together, you could see a scenario where, hey, Kawhi's had injuries, and LeBron's 35. Like, yeah, they're going to be dominant, but at least it won't last more than a couple of years. But I don't want it to happen at all, I think. I would like to see him stay in Toronto. Anyways, let's get into the Bills a little bit. Joe Marino was on with me and Nate earlier from the Draft Network and Locked On Bills. Super keen analysis on the Bills as we start to switch back into football mode. Unless the Sabres decide that they want to throw us a trade or throw us a signing at any point here, we're perfectly willing to uh, to get back into some hockey, and we'll do that. In- Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Second hour. Here's some football though. Joe Marino on with me and Nate. Hey, Joe, how are you? And uh, happy almost 4th of July. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Happy 4th to you guys. Yeah, man. So, um, you know, I was kind of uh, – I got some rapid-fire stuff to throw at you in a little while, but I want to get we, – we've got some important stuff to get through as we are literally I, – I, we're under 20 days now, right, or just just over 20 days until training camp starts at St. John Fisher. Um, and as we know, this time of year just absolutely flies by, and by the time we know it, we'll be kind of hanging out at St. John Fisher, and that'll be that, and then the first preseason game, and then week one, and then all of a sudden you're in December. It's just kind of the craziness um, that the football season brings. But where I kind of want to start with you, Joe, is, uh, is a position – group that I know you talked about this week on Lockdown Bills, and I wanted to kind of brush back on it because I think it's an incredibly important position for the development of this young quarterback in Josh Allen, is the tight end position, and sort of the uncertainty that remains with the injury to Tyler Croft, um, obviously Dawson Knox, the rookie, 
in training camp is going to be a big thing for him. Lee Smith, where he fits in. So there's just a lot of kind of moving parts, but there is no great player right now with injuries. And whether or not we think Tyler Croft's going to be a great or good player is kind of up for debate as well. So a little bit of the state of the tight end position and uh, whether or not you think it is a finished product or they might bring another player in before camp starts. Yeah, you know, the tight end position is, is an interesting one for the Bills this year. Uh, not one that you look at and say this is a position of strength. And Buffalo made some strides here, and really it's a, it's a completely different group compared to last group uh, when, when you consider all the new pieces and Jason Kroon really being the only holdover from last year. And, you know, Tyler Croft was signed in to be at least an adequate tight end. I, I, as I said on the podcast, I don't think any defensive coordinator in the NFL is losing sleep over how to stop Tyler Croft. But what you had in Tyler Croft is a guy with baseline skills across the board. He's going to be a fine blocker. He'll get his work done as a receiver. He's not overly dynamic, but he's a reliable security blanket for Josh Allen with enough size to potentially really challenge the, the scene. But with him really not being in the mix, uh, you know, with the broken foot, the same foot that he broke last year that cost him 11 games, he's going to be behind. And whether or not he's available for the start of the season remains to be seen. But even if he's cleared right around the start of the season, there's going to be some time for him not only to get in game shape, but get on the same page offensively because he's missing valuable time with uh, not really being available for OTAs, minicamp, or you know, really the, the training camp or preseason. So there's a big adjustment there. So even if he is your starter, if he is healthy, I don't think the Bills have a dynamic tight end in Tyler Croft. He's a, he's a middling starter, if anything. Now, you do have some young pieces that are interesting, primarily Dawson Knox, the Bills' third-round pick, guy from Ole Miss. If you look at his, his career at Ole Miss, not a lot of production. And what he was asked to do was very simple, very elementary. And there's a big step ahead of him to move to the NFL. And even the best tight end prospects don't always make big contributions right away. Think about O.J. Howard, one of the best tight ends we've seen come out of college in a long time. And he's really still just now finding his way uh, as a player. And so to ask Dawson Knox to step in and be the answer at tight end in year one of his rookie season coming from a situation where he was underutilized, and when he was used, it was in very simple capacities, you have to have some questions about that. And so, you know, you feel good about what the Bills were able to do to build around Josh Allen, but the tight end thing, as far as its outlook right now heading into the season, not necessarily what you think about with the offensive line or wide receiver group. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I, I think the the one guy that I find interesting, and, and, and I'm maybe interested in knowing what what kind of role you think he plays, is Lee Smith. Obviously, the former Buffalo Bill leaves, goes to the uh, Oakland Raiders, now comes back. Obviously, really over the course of his career, has been known as a very, very good blocking tight end, a run blocking tight end, a guy that really isn't going to bring you any dynamic in ter- dynamics in terms of athleticism, catching the football, but a guy that you can rely on in the trenches. Do we expect that to sort of be his role at least early? And do you think that was a smart move going to get a guy that you know you can rely on in the run game considering a guy like Dawson Knox we aren't exactly sure what his blocking acumen will be at the NFL level and we know with Tyler Croft he's got some of that but he's been mostly or predominantly been like a second or third guy as sort of your I don't want to say H-back but a guy that kind of goes out and really only asked to catch football so Lee Smith his uh you know what role we're looking to play there and how it fits into what they have at the position yeah I think Signing Lee Smith was a good move for the Bills, if nothing else, to have a veteran in the room with his type of experience to, to just kind of hold the, hold the group together. And you have you know, Tommy Sweeney, a seventh-round pick, Jason Kroon, who's still finding his way as a tight end after being a college free agent and, and switching over from wide receiver. And then, of course, Dawson Knox and Tyler Croft, who's not necessarily an established veteran in the league. Having a guy like Lee Smith is valuable just from that perspective, but also he's going to be 
one of the best tight end, blocking tight ends in the game like he always has been. And then in the receiving game, at least you know that you have a guy that can show his numbers to Josh Allen, find some space in zones, maybe leak out on a rollout, and, and handle those duties as something he's familiar with and comfortable doing. And so I do think that he has some value. It's not going to be overly exciting. It's not going to always be sexy. He's not going to catch a ton of footballs. But from the leadership perspective, from the blocking perspective, and being able to help space the field in a different way. I know obviously everyone would love a tight end that can really stretch the scene and put stress on linebackers and safeties to, to keep pace with them up through the middle of the field. But right now the Bills don't necessarily have a proven player in that regard, and you have receivers on the outside that can get vertical. Maybe this is a situation where you have those reliable, reliable security blanket-type receivers in Lee Smith that can just sit in the middle of the field and help space the offense for the Bills. Talked a lot about tight end here. When when camp starts, what's going to be the most interesting position for you in terms of reps? Is it tight end? For me, it's running back. I guess my mind goes to the offensive line because I think the only thing we know for sure is that Mitch Morse is going to be the center. I mean, I think you can see a number of combinations at every other spot. And so how they line up on a day-to-day basis on a you know preseason game to preseason game basis is something that I'm pretty fascinated with. As far as the running backs go, I, I mean, I really do believe that uh, Shady McCoy and Frank Gore are going to be the lead two backs for the Buffalo Bills. I think you need to find out what you have in Devin Singletary, who is one of uh, just a couple of players under contract beyond the season. I don't anticipate McCoy or Gore being brought back for 2020. So I do think you need to sprinkle in Singletary, see what his game's like, see if he can be one of your top two backs moving forward. But I think this is going to be the the Gore and, and McCoy show. Gore, excuse me, Gore and McCoy show in the backfield for the Bills this year. I think I'm right there with you. I know a lot of people are talking about a breakout season at the halfway mark or something for Singletary and Singletary to get to, to sort of be pushing for carries by the midway point. And I don't really see that happen. There's a two scenarios I could see that happening. A, there's injuries to either either or both McCoy and Gore. Or they're just not very good and they end up not being a good football team and then all of a sudden it's it's sort of like, let's get our young guys in. Well, I mean, as far as Frank Gore goes, I mean, if, if last season was any indication, he can still play. I mean, if you look at the analytics from Pro Football Focus, the highest rushing uh, grade he's had in his career, the highest yards after contact that he's had since his rookie season. And so he did that for a bad Miami Dolphins offense with no passing game and, no, and, and not a good offensive line. I have reason to believe that Frank Gore can still be a viable running back in the NFL. Well, Sean McCoy is the bigger question mark, in my opinion. He's the guy that you you really saw a regression last year. I know he was banged up. I know the offensive line wasn't right. But, I mean, the next time LaShawn McCoy breaks a tackle or gets makes a play where, that wasn't blocked for him will be the first time in a couple of seasons that we've seen that from McCoy. So I have more questions about McCoy and whether or not mm. he can get himself together than what we're going to get from Frank Gore. We, uh, Joe, we were, Joe and I, Joe DiBiase and I, were, were, were sort of looking at free agency and looking towards the future, and I was kind of interested in your thoughts on this. We were kind of looking at a few names on the Bills roster that we believe could potentially end up being the highest paid player, and, and as we know, the highest paid player at every position basically changes every year. So this isn't like a crazy hot take that we're asking you to, to throw at us, but is there a player on this team, and I look at the defensive side of the ball, and I think of two guys, Tremaine Edmonds and Tredavious White, as two guys that could potentially set the mark for their position when they enter free agency. Do you see guys on this roster right now that, that could potentially fit that mold and, and be a guy that, that sets the positional value, um, such like C.J. Mosley did this year for the middle linebacker position? Well, I think you've got the right two names, for sure. I mean, Trey White's uh, up going to be up for a deal sooner than Tremaine Edmonds, but uh, I can see both of those guys really 
redefining that market. And like you said there, every single year we, we redefine the market by whoever the next good young player is, right? They always get the highest deal. And I think that both of those players are, you know, Trey White certainly a little further along in his career, uh, want him to recapture his 2017 form a little bit, make those splash plays, be a little bit more consistent tackling and defending the run. But we know the type of player that Trey White can be, and he's the type of player that can, can command a contract like that. Now it'll be interesting because I think in that same draft class, Marshawn Lattimore and Marlon Humphrey were, were part of that mix. And so you've got some really good young corners that are going to be vying for a lot of money there. Uh, Tremaine Emmons, I mean, obviously the, the ceiling for him is unbelievable. His physical upside is really special. You saw that turn into playmaking, especially down the stretch last year for the Bills. And he's still a really young player that needs to play more football and just get more reps and get more comfortable with his processing and his keen diagnose skills. But really, you think about the ceiling on Tremaine Emmons and you see a special, special player. So, yes, definitely those are the two names that would come to mind for me as well for the guys that can be the highest-paid players at their position in the NFL. It was interesting, Joe. There was a guy on Twitter who uh, – a reputable name, but not, maybe not a reputable name um, – that was kind of, I guess, criticizing the role that Robert Foster could have in the Bills' offense this year. And I just want – what's your thoughts on like how that receiver position is going to shape up? Because I, it's so hard for me to see a situation <laughs> – given what Foster looked like at the end of last year, that he isn't getting, I, w- I don't want to say a majority of reps, but making an impact at least on the Bills' offense. Yeah, I think when you look at this Bills' receiving course, it's pretty unique, but this top four, Beasley, Jones, Brown, and Foster, I think you're going to see them on the field a ton. You know, The Bills went empty five wide a lot last year, and that's such a good move for the Bills because what that does is it, it, it makes it very difficult for – for defenses to disguise coverage, and it almost forces them to be in man. And when you have you play man coverage against the Bills, you have guys that can separate, but also you have Josh Allen, who's a great runner. And when you're in man coverage, your eyes are not in the backfield, and it just opens up a world of possibilities for, for Josh Allen to run the football. And so you saw Brian Dable go, go a lot to that late in the season last year, and I think that'll be a staple of the offense moving forward. But to me, what this comes down to with these wide receivers, it's all about spacing. And Foster and John Brown, you have two guys that can really stretch the field vertically, really lift coverage and open up opportunities for guys that guys like Zay Jones, guys like, like Cole Beasley, guys like the tight ends and the, and, the, and the running backs to get them more involved in the offense because all of that coverage is going to be lifted. And so I think that the Bills are very intentional about having four receivers that they can rely on that will play very different roles, but it all comes down to spacing and, and creating a more complete offense in terms of the areas of the field it can, it can really attack. You know, Josh Allen has no limitations with his physical ability. And so now you, you create better spacing for him to challenge the short and underneath areas while still preserving that deep ball and his ability to run the football. All of a sudden you have a very difficult offense to defend, although you know, they don't have a Julio Jones or an A.J. Green. I think it's about having all four of those guys and how they complement each other to create a diverse offense. Got Joe Moreno here on the West Her Hotline. He's from Locked On Bills. He's the host over there and, of course, the Draft Network. Joe, one of the other, I think, maybe interesting thought processes that I have going into this season, and and I always try to do this every year, is find a guy that had been drafted within the last two or three years that just has yet to really find a role or make an impact. And and the one guy that I look at from the last year that that I think is trending in the right direction, obviously, uh, there's two guys. Taron Johnson, he flashed so much at points last year. He's just this physical football player who kind of puts his body on the line. The only thing you worry about with him is what 
the what he ended up missing time for last year, which is injury issues due to his playing style. Can he hold up a full 16-game season? That's yet to be seen. The other guy that I think is, is a somewhat interesting player that's trending in the right direction that could find himself a more uh, maybe a more established role in the defense is Sarah Neal. Um, do you have any other players, the young players that you see are, are maybe ready to, to make a jump, whether it's year two or year three, um, into more, you know, I guess, important roles going into the season? You know, those, those would be the two names I would definitely go with. Uh, Teron Johnson, a guy who I think he's got a lot of versatility and coverage in terms of man and zone. You love his ability to defend the run and come forward and tackle. And him being a physical player, that's a staple. That's what makes him great. And hopefully that shoulder is not something that's going to be problematic for years to come. But uh, the Bills' defense is, is in good hands if he can be the slot corner. And then Saran Neal, you know, a, a player that, if you look at him back at Jacksonville State where he came from, he played linebacker, he played safety, he played outside corner and slot. So he's a player that's been moved around a ton. And I think just from the reports from, from camp and OTAs that, he's getting a chance to play more down uh, in the box as a slot and using him as a blitzer. He was very disruptive uh, blitzing not only in OTAs recently, but also in, in last year's games. If you look at the preseason and the regular season, he got a chance to blitz on three occasions and twice he got a sack. I mean, I think there's something there. And I think being able to have a deeper uh, pool of defensive backs is going to be very important for this Bills defense moving forward because now they can play the matchups a little bit, something you've seen teams do like the Patriots, who they play a lot of different corners and defensive backs, but it's really about having the right guys to neutralize the way the offense is attacking you. And now that the Bills have some depth, I think Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier will be afforded more of those opportunities. So I wish I had a different player to give you, but I think those are the right two. I mean, Matt Milano is the name that comes to mind, but I think he's already really proven his role and is really set to emerge as, as one of the better linebackers in the game this coming season. So I go to those two young defensive backs and, and really – them claiming a big role here in in year three or year two for them. So it's come up again today on uh, with me and Nate, like the Bills versus the Jets, and I feel like that's a, a, an argument that's been had throughout the mm. whole off season. Like, where do you stand on where the Bills are in comparison to the Jets? I like at least on par, if not even ahead. Well, you've got to feel a lot better about the coaching situation. I can't believe Adam Gase has gotten another chance to be an NFL head coach, <laughs> and all the same type of things that really were buried him in Miami. It's already started to come up with the Jets, as you saw with the discord with the front offense, the, the comments that he made about uh, Le'Veon Bell. You saw him trade Darren Lee literally the minute Mike McEgan was fired. And I, I just I have questions about that. I don't think his resume is very good. And so he inherits a football team on the rise that went out and spent a ton of money on players, and you already kind of feel that disruption. And, and you know, I, I think the best indicator of future performance is past performance and I think we know a lot about Adam Gase and so from that perspective right there I feel a lot better about where the Bills are in terms of coaching now the Jets are a good football team I think that there's a lot of parallels that you can you can draw in terms of where the Bills are and where the Jets are in terms of roster building I will say that when I look at the Jets they have two big weaknesses in my opinion number one is cornerback I don't think their cornerback situation is very favorable I'd much prefer the Bills and I think the offensive line I think the Jets for all the money they spent this offseason, they really did a disservice to themselves by not investing in that offensive line when you have a young quarterback in Sam Darnold and you have a running back in Le'Veon Bell who you just gave big money to who's used to having an elite offensive line in Pittsburgh. And this is a patient runner, you know, Le'Veon Bell. He was, he's a guy that really prides himself in being patient, letting blocks take form and working off of them. And that's something he had in Pittsburgh. Does he have that same type of opportunity in New York? I have questions about that. So, um, 
there's a lot of reasons that I would I would side with with the Bills, but I think what's making people more comfortable siding with the Jets is it really comes down to Sam Darnold versus Josh Allen. And I think it's easier to be more confident in Sam Darnold than it is in Josh Allen, who has a little bit more variance and, and a little bit more of a, of a jump ahead of him to really claim his role as the franchise quarterback for the Buffalo Bills. So I think that's where the discord comes, but I think there's a big argument to be said that there's a lot to like about where Buffalo's headed as well. I really like that point you made about Josh Allen and Sam Darnold, and I don't know that I've heard it, is that when you're talking about the two players, I think everyone's sort of just deferring and saying Sam Darnold's the better player, he'll have the better season, they'll be the better team. And and I think for the most part, I, 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 I think I agree a little bit. Um, I, I don't agree that they'll be the better team, but I do think that, you know, just at from what you saw and the sample size you got last year that, that Sam Darnold had the better season and is probably primed to have the better season at this coming year. But what you mentioned is, is, is I think maybe something that we don't talk about is really the biggest difference is the jump that each of them will have to take to get to a level that we say, yes, they're the superior player or, or yes, they made the jump in year two. It's just to me that Josh Allen has a larger jump than Sam Darnold does. It doesn't suggest that going into year two that he can't be better than Darnold. So I, that, that was a really interesting points to you before. Joe, uh, before I let you go, I kind of want to go through some rapid fire with you. I kind of want to just throw some uh, thoughts your way. They'll be short, but I'd like you your answer and then to elaborate on it. So uh, I'm going to start with a couple of scenarios here for you. And really what it is, is I'm asking you who you think has the better season in 2019. And we're going to start with two players. One is Bill, one is not. Will Fuller or John Brown, who has the better 2019 season and why? Uh, that's two very similar players that are going to have very similar roles. Um, I, I think it, the safer choice is to go with uh, Will Fuller. It's not safe because he's always injured, but if they're both healthy, Will Fuller, when he's been healthy, when he's been able to get work in with, with Deshaun Watson, I mean, the production's been outstanding. And so if they're both healthy, I'm going to go with the more proven quarterback with, with the guy that when they've been on the field together, they've been very consistent. So give me Will Fuller in that situation. Better season in 2019, Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson? Uh, I think that's going to be Josh Josh Allen. Uh, I have a lot of questions about Lam- – I mean, you, you might have similar questions about Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson, but when you apply those questions to Lamar Jackson, there is a much bigger mountain for him to climb. I think he, he regressed as a passer from what we saw in Louisville during his final season. You know, you, you feel like this Ravens offense is going to be super different in terms of what it looks like compared to the rest of the NFL, and I think that there's just limitations with Lamar Jackson that are going to be difficult. So I like a lot – more about what's happening with Josh Allen and Buffalo than I do with Lamar Jackson and Baltimore. More likely to just have a giant embarrassing blow up. Adam Gase or Greg Williams? <laughs> uh, I think Greg Williams. I think Adam Gase is. You might have some self awareness about him taking this this taking this new opportunity to be a head coach again. Where Greg Williams, I mean, that dude's been on a mission for ten years. It feels like, and I think that. You can you can be guaranteed that Greg Williams is going to have some uh, some some crazy press conferences here throughout the course of the season. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I got a good one here for you. Better chance at a at a bounce back season: Kevin Johnson, their newest uh, signee at the cornerback position, or Trent Murphy. Oh, I think probably Kevin Johnson. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I, I, John Butler, the Bills' secondary coach, they they know Kevin Johnson. I think it, it, he might not be the starter. But I think he'll get chances to play and contribute. Trent Murphy, I'm nervous about him. He's a player coming off of that ACL tear. He didn't look anything like the player in 2017. And let's be honest, if you look at the course of his career, 
2017 is more of an anomaly than the rest of his career. So I, I don't know. I think I think that uh, that Trent Murphy may not. If, if the Bills are expecting 2017 Trent Murphy, I think they might be disappointed. Let's follow up that that Trent Murphy question with my final question. More likely to lead the team in sacks, Trent Murphy or Ed Oliver? I think Ed Oliver for mm-hmm. sure. Interior interior player, shorter distance. I mean, he's so explosive. He plays with such great leverage. He's going to be a handful for interior blockers to keep pace with. Trent Murphy, I think he's a guy that if he's going to get sacks, I don't really trust him to win 1v1 so much as I do trust him to play with effort and get cleanup sacks. So give me Ed Oliver up the middle. All right, Joe, we appreciate it, man. Uh, tell the people where they can find you on Twitter and any work you got planned here for uh, after the holiday heading into training camp. No, I appreciate you guys uh, having me on to talk bills. Uh, the spot to find me on Twitter is at the Joe Marino. Obviously, I host the daily podcast in the Buffalo Bills, Locked On Bills, and all my written work is over at thedraftnetwork.com. We're going to keep getting ready for the season on, on both both uh, platforms. So uh, thanks for having me. The Joe Marino is a spot to keep track of it all. All right, Joe, we appreciate it, man. Enjoy the holiday, and thanks again for joining us. Of course, anytime, guys. Thank right. you. There he is, Joe Marino. I'll have uh, some reaction to what he said, some Bills talk in the next hour, but I want to get into some hockey too because there are still some good free agents out there, and for some reason they're not signing. Um, so we'll get into that when we come back. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. Well, golf, because the weatherman predicted rain. Predicts rain, doesn't rain. It's not the first time this has happened. Something fishy is going on here. What if the weatherman predicts it's going to rain just so he can keep people off the golf course and have it for himself. What do you think of that theory? I think it's ridiculous. It's the nightcap. How's it looking out there? It's wide open, man. Hardly anybody out there. Probably has something to do with that weather forecast. Probably does. Have you seen the weatherman out there? Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, there he is with uh, Dr. Funkhauser coming up on the night hole. Hey, Larry. What's going on? Beautiful day, huh? Yeah. Great day for golf. Yeah, you know, I was supposed to play today. Really? And Jeff called me last night and canceled... Because of your weather report about thunder showers. I made a mistake, so what? Come on. Oh, I said it was going to be thunder showers? Yeah, yeah. Oops. <laughs> oh, 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 Yeah, okay. Nice to see you. Good Too to see you, Larry. Too bad for me. Take care. Too bad for me. I, I, I don't quite get your point. All right, weatherman, well, I'm going to tell you my point. I've got a sneaking suspicion that you're predicting rain to clear the golf course for yourself. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, ridiculous. Come on. Ridiculous. That, it's it's happened weather. before, weatherman. You know it. I'm going to report you because every time you want to play golf, Larry, you make sure that it's raining. Larry, first of all, I'm not a weatherman. I'm a meteorologist. I'd appreciate oh, a little bit of respect. On WGR Sports Radio 550. That better not happen tomorrow. It's not going to. Because I haven't seen anyone predicting rain. I'm supposed to golf tomorrow morning with uh, our own Nate Geary. Don't plan on beating him. But I don't know. He tweets a lot about his uh, his golf scores. And uh, he tweets the types of scores that I don't think I can compete with. Uh, unless I'm having one of my best days ever. But uh, well, we'll see. We'll see how truthful he's really been. About uh, how good he's been doing this year. 803-0550 is the phone number. It's the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase here on WGR. We'll get into some hockey talk in a little bit. We just played Joe Marino back for you, though. A lot of good film analysis from him on the Bills, Locked On Bills, uh, the Draft Network. And listening to him on the running backs today. It's it's kind of a, a, it's kind of a thing I've picked up this offseason. It's a hill I guess I'm deciding to die on. That 
there really needs to be youthful change in the backfield. It's come at every other position for the most part. When is it going to happen at running back? It's fine that it hasn't happened yet, but it needs to happen. because that. And I say it's fine because it hasn't happened yet because that's the position really where it should be easiest to change over overnight. You draft a guy in the second, third, fourth round, generally they're pretty productive in the rookie seasons. You sign a free agent who's been a backup in a place, and he's usually able to be at least pretty productive for you. Happens all the time in the league. Every single year, there's a guy, or there's ten guys. And the Bills did one this offseason. One guy that's youth, that's, uh, that's young. And that is Devin Singletary. And I'm very optimistic on what he could be in this offense. But what's standing in his way is a bunch of veteran running backs that are in front of him. Fine. I I can stand one or two, but the fact that you have three, we'll see if they all make the team. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. But for now, that's what where we're at. And McCoy is always the guy I think about for moving on from because I think he could have some sort of value that you could send him to another team, and get something back in return where I don't see the other two guys having that. Joe Marino today, I asked him about running back. And if you missed it, he essentially said that he thinks Frank Gore is going to have a bigger and more impactful role in this offense than maybe some people are predicting. Football guys who project stats for each team in their offense had Gore fourth in total yards of the four running backs on this team right now. And what the way Marino talked, like he, he's right. You look at any pro football focus grade from Gore last season, you look at his yards per carry, you look at his efficiency breaking tackles, he had maybe his best season last year. Best season of his career. For probably second. He had a monster year uh, in the second year of his career back uh, a, a while ago with the 49ers. That was in... What year was that? That was 2006. He had 1,700 yards rushing and eight touchdowns, along with another 500 uh, through the air. So, I mean, 2,200 yards total. But last year, super efficient. 4.6 yards per carry. The highest he had had since he was in his 20s. 2012 was the last time he had a number like that. He didn't score a rushing touchdown, but... 722 yards and only 156 carries. Started all 14 games for the Dolphins when they have a very good running back in Kenyon Drake. Very good running back. Gore held him off all season. And to me, while he wasn't a receiving option, he only had 124 yards, I think there is a chance he could have a bigger role in this offense like Joe Marino thinks. He also was not on a good offense last year. He also did not have a good offensive line last year. Now, I know the Bills probably had a worse offensive line, but it wasn't by much. What McCoy and Chris Ivory were working with, you know, it was worse, but to me it wasn't that much worse than what the Dolphins had. Like, they were underwhelming as well. You look at their PFF grades, they're right there with the Bills at the bottom of the league. And Frank Gore was running behind that same offensive line. But he did a really, really good job at it. Almost five yards a carry having some of the same excuses that you could have made for him that we're all making right now for McCoy. What should I expect productivity-wise? I think it's very, very right to think there is a good chance that not only is Frank Gore 
capable of having a role on this offense at age 36, but he might be capable of being your number one running back. I don't think that's a spot I want to be in because I want Singletary to eventually take the hold of that spot, and I think McCoy is going to start off with it, depending how they how they look in training camp. But don't sleep on Frank Gore. I'm not sleeping on him. I, I've kind of been awakened to that today because he's always been an afterthought for me. Uh, he's going to be goal line carries, and he'll get 100 carries, but not much more than that. Hearing Joe Marino talk about him today kind of sparked my thinking that, okay, maybe he could have a bigger role in this offense. And maybe the Bills could really just have a four-headed, I don't want to call it a monster, but a four-headed committee of guys they can interchange, come in and out. Almost all of them can play different types of roles. Uh, McCoy can catch passes and can be a three-down back. Singletary looks like he's able to catch passes and be a three-down back. Yeldon's a good pass catcher. Gore is a good three-down back. Like, I have options everywhere. And at least I have... Some versatility there. Like, it's not the end of the world to me if you all four are here. I'd rather have it so that McCoy would be traded and Singletary is, gets an opportunity to be the lead back. But it's not the worst thing in the world having all four of those guys here. Because I do get the sense that sometimes people hear me talk about running back and think, oh, you're just hating on McCoy. You just want Singletary to start. And I do, but... I don't think it's a huge deal if all four guys are here. Because one thing that seemed they've had the past couple seasons is they have a compliment to McCoy, like Chris Ivory or Mike Tolbert or before that, Booby Dixon. Um, not quite Carlos Williams, but like more recently, Ivory and Tolbert, where they would come into the game and you would almost immediately think, okay, this is a run for this is a run for a situation. It's more likely they are going to run the football because this guy's in the game now than if McCoy was in the game. McCoy's more of a was more of a uh, dynamic receiver than those guys. He's not a great receiver, but a much better one, and he's a guy that you have to worry about in open space more than those other guys. Now. You put McCoy in, well, they could pass or throw. You put Singletary in, they could pass or throw. You put Yeldon in. He's been effective enough as a runner, while if I'm a defense, I probably think to myself, okay, Yeldon's in the game. There's a better chance that it's a pass, but to me, he gives you more as a runner than those pass running backs like Ivory and Tolbert gave you as a pass catcher. And Gore, a little bit better too. I think he'll he can give you more as a pass catcher um, and a, as a pass blocker. I mean, he's one of the better backs in the league today at pass blocking at that position. So to me, he provides more value at that position as well than some of your past backup running backs have had, like Mike Tolbert and like Chris Ivory. So at the at worst case scenario, they have upgraded their complement to LaShawn McCoy. And even though though I don't think McCoy is still capable of being a number one back in the league. Um, at the very worst, like I said, they have upgraded from having one veteran backup running back like Ivory or Tolbert that really couldn't give you much of anything. They can give you some, but not much. 803-0550 is the phone number. We're going to switch to hockey when we come back. Marty Baram was on with Jeremy White, and I got a couple of uh, thoughts on some of the remaining free agents. One guy that we've really never, ever talked about, and... I think for good reason, because he probably is going to cost, I think of the free agents left on the market, this guy will get the most money. And I want to analyze him as an option for the Sabres, because I think he would make the team better right away, but not without consequence. It's the Nightcap with Joe DiBiase. Stay tuned on WGR. 
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome back to the Nightcap. We're going to get to Marty Baran in a second. With Jeremy White from earlier today. He's trying to make a fantasy trade with Jeremy in the last 24 hours. I was pretty upset when he, uh, you know, he get, he sends that text. And I was very upset with myself, but also that I wasn't able to capitalize. He says, oh, I'm looking to trade one of these three players. And I didn't see the text for about a half hour. Then by the time I'm able to respond, hey, I would love to get one of these guys. Here's my offer. Oh, he's already traded. Arr. That's sometimes how fantasy goes. You got to be ready. You always got to be ready. A guy gets cut. A guy gets injured. You got to be ready to go on the waiver wire or on free agency if you can. Um, same thing with trades. If a guy suddenly becomes available, it can be uh, it can sting when a missed opportunity like that passes by. So we'll hear from uh, Jeremy with Marty Baron in a second. One player I do want to uh, go over, though, that has yet to really come up in Sabre circles. See, there's a rumor about him today that was completely fake, completely false. It's not true. But Jake Gardner is still on the open market. And I think he's a good defenseman, a very good defenseman. His analytics are very strong. He's been a little bit protected situationally during his time with the Leafs, but he is good. I like him more than Tyler Myers. Now here's the thing. You've got so many NHL defensemen here right now. So many. And I think if I'm going to even consider an idea like that, a couple of things need to happen if I'm the Sabres. And that's why this is this is why I don't think it's ever going to come close to happening because you need probably three things to even get to a point where it's a good idea and then he'd have to want to come here I need to get at least two defensemen on NHL contracts that are on this team right now out of here that can be Ristolainen, that can be Zach Bogosian, that could be Marco Scandella, or if you're trying to get something good back uh, like you would be for Ristolainen, maybe you want to trade Jake McCabe as well those are four guys that might be movable Two of which, you might get something good back. Ristolainen and McCabe. I need two of those four guys out of here, if I'm even thinking about that. Because those are big money contracts. Um, McCabe, not so much, but he's going to be at least some decent money. Maybe between three and four million. Uh, that'll be interesting to see where that comes in. Um, but Gardner's going to get a solid chunk of change. So I need to clear some space that way. And the other thing is, I really need to know what I have in Pilot. And I'm not going to be able to know that. First of all, how injured is he? Second of all, I'd like to know, because we don't have a good sense of this, because Housley didn't want to use him. What does Bottrell think of Lawrence Pilot? Does he truly believe the advanced stats on him that show that he's a top four defenseman? Because the eye test wouldn't tell you that. Eye test, you, you know, you could see an NHL defenseman, but I don't think you're seeing top four yet from that. But the underlying numbers will tell you that. What does Bottrell believe on him? Because if he does believe he's a top four defenseman and he's pretty sure that's going to happen, you don't need Jake Gardner. But if you're questioning whether he can do it, well, suddenly, I'm kind of missing another top four left shot defenseman. McCabe can do it, don't get me wrong. But I think if I'm a good team, he's on my third pair. 
So otherwise, I'm missing that. I've got Dalene and then Pilot and then Scandella is my next left shot D, other than McCabe. Gardner would come right in, and he would be as solid as you can get as a second-pair left shot defenseman. The third thing is you'd have to make money work to get him to come here. The way the market has shaped up, he is by far the best defenseman left on the market. It's not even close. Tyler Myers was his main competition. He goes to Vancouver. There's Gardner sitting there, a very good player, and there's not much else there on the blue line. A team that might be desperate to improve their blue line in win-now mode. I don't know who that could be, um, but a team that's weak on the blue line. Maybe, maybe Pittsburgh could be this. I don't know if they have the cap space to do that. They're a team, though, that would be hey, I don't really have a lot on the blue line. We're still in win-now mode. Let's get Jake Gardner. You're competing with that team. And you'd have to be ready to pay him long-term good money, too. It's different than Scandella or Bogosian or even Ristolainen, where you're talking about three years tops. Gardner might be a guy that gets six or seven years. I would want to only pay him five, but I don't think that's realistic. He'd probably take six or seven. So there's a... Just a quick look at Gardner as an option for the Sabres, because I know he was talked about a little bit today. Okay idea. I don't love it. I'm not sure, and I don't think it's all that realistic, but uh, it could happen. You never say never, because he is the best defenseman on the market, and Sabres could still use some improving on their blue line. 803 is the phone number. If you got any thoughts on that, we're going to hear a little more hockey talk, though, here from Marty Baran, who joined Jeremy White this morning. Here is Marty with uh, with Jeremy. 8030550 is our phone number on the Western Hotline. The media mogul himself, Marty Baron. Marty, good morning. Good morning, Jeremy. No Howard, so uh, you feel a little lonely this morning. I know, I know. It's why I called you to to, to chat. What, what? What? Have you been on the instigators lately? But what are you on vacation? No, um, I was last week, and then Monday when they did their uh, their five hour radio, I was actually in Toronto working at TSN that that day. So uh, I did a couple things on the phone with them, but this week is vacation from the instigators. We've talked plenty of hockey over the last couple days, but um, you know you're on TSN on Monday for free agency day, and you know things hit at noon. So, what's your big takeaway from how things have gone so so far? Maybe not the Sabers, but the league. What's the big story? Uh, for me, it was the Florida Panthers. I mean, going after Sergey Bobrovsky, and then they added Noah Turi, Brett Conley. They added. Uh, uh, a couple of other pieces. I think the Atlantic, which the Buffalo Sabres are in, is going to be really, really strong. Toronto made some moves. Uh, you know, Tampa is still going to be really strong. Uh, Boston is still going to be very competitive. And now Florida is coming through, and they picked up a goalie, which was their their one downfall the last few years. They have good players: Rubio, Barkov, Dadanov. Uh, Yeah, think about Florida, Marty. For a long time, Sabres games against Florida have been watching Roberto Luongo stuff them. He He's owned the Sabres for a long time. He retires and they get Bobrovsky. What do you think about Bobrovsky as a goaltender? Is he of the level that removing for a moment, should you pay that much for a goaltender? If you're going to, is he of the elite class? Is he right there with Carey Price to you? 
Uh, and you know, let's put the salary aside. Sergey Bobrovsky is an elite, elite goaltender in the National Hockey League. He's one of the best. Uh, you can see it in his technique and his ability to uh, uh, to move and the way he makes saves and his athleticism. There's just so many things that make him one of the best. And I know that in the playoffs uh, in his career, this, this season was the first season that he really performed well. Before that, uh, I think... Uh, he never given up, or maybe only one time had given up less than three goals in the playoff game. So there was some question mark there. This year, he was able to put that aside. But paying a goalie $10 million is very dangerous. Uh, you know, the, the difference between a $10 million player and a $5 million player is huge. The $10 million player gets you 100, 110 points, maybe 50 goals. Uh, the $5 million player gets you... You know, 55 points in a season, maybe 25 goals. And with goaltenders, the numbers are very similar. There's not that much of a gap between a four or five million dollar goalie and a 10 million dollar goalie. So I think that's dangerous. But you know, uh, Florida needed to address it. They were willing to pay because what they did is they traded James Reimer to Carolina, acquired Scott Darling, bought him out, and then on top of that, paid Bobrovsky. So you're looking at the financial. Uh, commitment they made, they were willing to do it. So when a team is willing to do that, then you say, you know, more power to you. You're trying to win. When it comes to the goalie separation, is that something, Marty, that you think has um, – what, what has created that? Is it that goalies are better than ever and, and developing goalies is better? Is it a function of coaching, goaltender coaching, the way that the game is played? I, I guess what I'm asking is do you wish – that the league could get to a space where there was a bigger difference between the great goalies and the good goalies and the bad goalies? Yeah, see, I don't know that it will ever get there. Number one, uh, you know, I think there's two uh, mentality with it because it, a goalie is such a big impact on a team and their success in a game and it's, you know, as uh, win or loss. So some teams say we need a stud goaltender and we need to pay that stud goalie accordingly. Uh, if you're the Montreal Canadiens and Carey Price is the best goalie in the world and he's, you know, potentially could walk at some point and you don't have anybody else coming up to replace him, you're going to pay, you know, that goaltender a lot of money. Same thing with Florida with Bobrovsky. But I always feel that, you know, with development, with system and structure you can make a, a really good goalie not a not an elite elite goalie but a really good goalie uh you know part of the, the you know with numbers part of the top of the league and we saw that with jordan biddington this year we've seen it around now i'm not saying you need a a two million dollar goalie a million and a half dollar uh, a year goalie like the carolina hurricanes did last year with Curtis mccelaney and peter morazic that's not what i'm saying but you spend four or five million dollars on a goalie. That should be plenty right now to get you to to win a cup uh, and and have enough money to uh, to spend on other players. Marty Baron on the Western Hotline. How about the Sabers goaltending scenario, Marty? I think it's probably going to stay how it is this year. Um, but moving forward, is it basically in your eyes? Should it be a situation where Bottrell waits until he finds a guy that he thinks is worth five to six million, and then you sign up for that? You basically sign up for the certainty more than anything. Well, I think they've got their situation set. And listen, uh, you know, in the first two months of the season, 
Carter Hutton and Lena Solmark were spectacular. They were great, and they were great working together. When Hutton needed a break, Allmark came in and played well. And you know, but like the rest of the team, it really went. It regressed, and it regressed because the the play in front of them regressed. It regressed because uh, you know they did not perform to the level that they wanted to. Um, I'm not really worried about it. I think that the you know your coaching staff and Ralph Kruger and his team are going to definitely put a emphasis on defensive play. That's going to help Carter Hutton and his hallmark. Uh, and I, I think they learned a lot last year. I think Carter, we got a chance to talk to him on the instigator, and he said he learned a lot last year from you know the adversity, the situation, how to handle playing more games. He'd never really done that before. So I really. I'm not worried about it. I think that's going to be fine. I think they're going to both work really well. Uh, but it all depends also how the team is going to play in front of them because you can't have guys wide open on the side of the net. You can't have guys taking second and third rebound opportunities and expect them to do well because then you start chasing the game and, and nobody wins when you do that. Marty Baran on the Wester Hotline. All right, Marty, so keeping the puck out of the net with defensive fixes, you know, Kruger is going to be a part of that. They're crowded back there now, the acquisition yeah. of Colin Miller. So would, I, would you agree that somebody's going to go? And I don't know who it'll be. Ristolainen, of course, has talked about a lot. McCabe's name came up. I don't know if it's somebody else. But somebody, one, two, have to go. I think somebody is most likely going to go, but I don't know that it's going to happen before the start of the season. And the reason I'm saying that is, you know, if you're Jason Bottrell, Ralph Kruger, the Sabres organization, you have to start the season the right way. You you have to put all your effort in saying we're going to have the best possible uh, roster in October. Uh, so unless you tr- you get a really good return that's going to make an impact for you in October, uh, you're not going to do anything right now because – you can't start the month of October three and seven, and then go in November and be four and eight in November, and all of a sudden everybody is you know jumping out the window again, and that that just can't happen. So unless the offer is really good on anybody on the back end or even as forward, um, and really going to make a difference for you in October, you can't do it. And I know there's a lot of players; it's crowded back there, but. You're to the point now where you have 12 defensemen back there. You're not going to trade four of them. Some of them are destined to go to Rochester. Some of them will start on the uh, long on the uh, injured reserve at the start of the season, and then that's going to you know knock your number down to maybe eight or nine, and then you'll decide if you need to trade one or not. So um, I think there's a, again, I, I really trust in what Jason Bottrell is is doing and how he's he's approaching it. Last summer. You saw the, the, you know, the Sherry deal was later. The Skinner deal was even later in the summer. So I, I really think that this will all get sorted out. But he's trying to put the best team possible in October uh, just so they can start off the, the right way. Was there any free agent you think could have helped that they did not go get? No, not really. I wasn't expecting the Sabres to go full out in free agency. Um, I I. I, I really didn't think there was anybody out there for them. You're not going to go and spend whatever $12 million on Artemi Panarin. Uh, you know, Matt Duchesne, I'm not a big fan of Matt Duchesne. Even if he signed a very affordable contract, he wanted to go to Nashville. And I'm not a big Duchesne fan, so um, I didn't really want that. And, you know, that then you start, you know, giving out a lot of money for players that 
you're going to regret. So I, I was totally fine with that. How about the acquisitions that they did make? Jimmy VC and uh, Colin Miller, two um, depth guys. Maybe Miller more of a, a prominent guy, depending on what kind of role they see him in. Yeah, I really like the acquisition of Colin Miller. I mean, you give up a second and a fifth, I believe. That's what it was. I, I do that every day. Uh, and giving up a third-round pick for Jimmy VC, I mean, that's a no-brainer right there. Uh, VC is a guy I think should be penciled in at 20 goals a season. He's had 17, 17, 16, whatever it was the last three years. Should be at least 20 goals. Uh, you know, him and Jack know each other really well. They never played together, but they know each other well. Um, I see VC run out your top nine. Now, again, we talked about the jog lamb, uh, log jam on the uh, uh, on defense, there's a log jam on left side too of, uh, you know, with the forward as left winger. So is there a move coming up there? Is there guys going to be moved around? Uh, we've seen guys going from left wing to right wing. And, you know, everybody says, well, that doesn't matter. You can play left wing, right wing. And once you're on the ice, you kind of interchange anyway in the offensive zone. I say that's partially true. In the defensive zone, the difference between getting a puck on your back end or forehand when you're on the half wall and the defenseman pitching, um, there's a big difference. So you got to make sure that the guy is comfortable playing on his off wing uh, because in the defensive zone, it makes a big difference. And finally, Marty, we finally got one. We got our offer sheet. <laughs> Were you? I, I'm trying to remember as I uh, I persevered through all the haters and doubters. Were you one trying to convince me to stop talking about it because it would never happen again? Oh yeah, because here's the thing: it's rare. It drives the market up, and you know teams don't like that. Teams don't like having a tool like salary arbitration, free agency, whatever, to drive the market up, uh, where you could have a player at a lower price tag and. So everybody's all over Mark Bergerman because he didn't offer Sebastian Howe more money and he made it easier in Carolina. Well, what's the plan? When you're a general manager, your objective is to sign the players to the lowest possible number you can get to manage your payroll and your salary cap. And so Sebastian Howe accepted that offer. Uh, Bergerman looked at it and said, that's the highest we can go in that threshold. And it really made Carolina's decision easy. Uh, but if you look back, you know, what is it now? Eight out of the last nine or seven have out of the last eight shit have been matched. The only one that wasn't matched was Dustin Penner because it was ridiculous. Paying Dustin Penner $4.5 million a year over five years uh, after winning the Cup in Anaheim, you know, Edmonton really lived that, never lived that one, you know, down. They just, uh, it was, it was a, a ridiculous offer. So uh, unless it's a ridiculous offer, it will probably always be matched. And now Montreal just did uh, Carolina a favor. So well, just, one thing about yeah. this, Marty, I, I do think the next step is a GM saying, go ahead, we'll walk away. Because if you think about the offer sheets that got signed and matched, O'Reilly, right? Ryan O'Reilly gets matched by Colorado. Then they trade yeah. him a few years later. Shea Weber gets matched by Nashville. Then they trade him a few years later. So it's almost like these GMs that match them, and I wonder if Carolina does this too, you know, th- three years from now because he'll be a free agent in five years it's yeah. al- it's almost like listen we're willing to part with this player we're willing to make a trade but it's got to be on our terms so i'm going to match this deal and then two years from now i'm going to revisit the idea of trading it for something to me i wonder when if, if we get more of these if we get another one 
The next big step comes when a team walks, whether it's because of the cap or it's because they don't place the same value on the player and they think, all right, I I can deal with this. I think I'm winning by taking the picks instead. It has to be a really, really good team that has a lot more, you know, uh, coming up or on the roster. Like if Tampa Bay gets, you know, somebody throws an offer sheet at Braden Point, uh, Tampa Bay can walk and say, well, we still have Kucherov, Stamkos, Style Johnson, you know, Kalorn and Edmund and, you know, Vasilevsky, and they can say, okay, that's totally fine. Like, we're, 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 to- we're totally in a good place, and we'll take the compensation. But Carolina wasn't going to do that. Uh, there's a lot of teams that are not in uh, a position to be able to just simply walk from that, uh, from the offer sheet, and say, we're fine with the picks. A first, second, and third round pick was not a lot, and really, there's two reasons why a team would walk away. One is this, you know, the AAV would be too high, uh, so they would do it. And two is the situation like right now, to Sebastian Howe being a free agent in five years, that puts Carolina in a bad position. They'd love to have Howe for eight years, but I'll tell you this: these five-year contracts right now, I know that. The general manager and the NHL is not—they're not liking these five-year contracts because I think Jack Eichel, Connor McDavid, these guys that have signed eight-year deals would make so much more money in a 13-year period, a 14-year period, if they sign a five or six-year deal first and then hit hard on an eight-year deal um, because the you know the money is going to be crazy in a few years. So yep. Matthews, possibly Marner, Aho. These five-year deals are, are becoming like very, very dangerous to the National Hockey League. There is Marty Baran. We will hear more from him when we come back, and uh, we'll wrap about that a little bit as well. 803-0550 if you got any thoughts. It's the Nightcap with Jody Biasi here on WGR. Welcome back to the nightcap. Piers Morgan is uh, kind of a jerk, right? Just reading some story on him and his Twitter. He's just... Ugh, I just... Never mind. I don't even want to get into it. Some guys, man, they're just so inconsistent all the time. And just hope that uh, you hope you never become that guy. That Piers Morgan guy. Anyways, let's get back to uh, Marty Baron with Jeremy White from earlier today. Right. Well, it's one thing the the players, if they ever really wanted to fight Marty and really fight for something to get in the CBA, it would be the right to have player options on their deals the way that NBA players do. Nathan McKinnon right now should opt out of his deal if he could. Opt out and ask for a raise because he's making about half of what he's worth. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if that's ever going to happen for these guys. They do get fully guaranteed contracts, so... Uh, the alternative is just to do what the players have started to do now, which is sign shorter-term deals and ensure that as the cap goes up with their career, they capitalize that on that in the very best way. Well, they used to. They used to have team options, players options. They went away from that. They used to have signing bonuses, uh, not signing bonuses, performance bonuses for anybody, not just the 35 and over players at the entry-level deal. Uh, but they went away from all that because I feel that the league didn't trust the, their their managers, their general managers, to make the right decisions. The same way they they put a limit on uh, the amount of years, the terms you could get on a contract, because now teams start signing 12, 13 year deals 
and it was not good for the league. So all those restrictions were so that it was making the job easier for general managers, and I think it did because you look at a guy like Nate McKinnon, as you pointed out, man, that contract is yeah, uh, it's nice. You know, it, it's a bonus for the Colorado Avalanche, and now they can go and and make deals and acquire players because they they know they have the capital. Yep. All right, Marty. Well, what's next for the Sabres? Jake Gardner, is there anybody you like out there as a free agent that's still left? Marcus Johansson, or is it just wait for Jason Bottrell to do some uh, some work to the roster? I think it's just wait for Jason Bottrell to do some work on the roster. I mean, you're not going to acquire another defenseman, uh, especially through free agency, because you're going to overpay a guy. Um, that's not going to happen, in my opinion. Uh, forward, you know, you've got enough, you know, I, I don't want to call them middle class guys, but you got a lot of the middle pack guys. You know, now you've added VC, you got Sherry, uh, you've got a hardworking guy in the middle. So you need you need to go for you know the same type of uh, the transaction that brought in Jeff Skinner last year. Uh, that brings in a a top six forward that's going to be a a main fixture there at least for a couple of seasons. So that's what I'm expecting, and it's going to come, you know, in July or August before training camp. I think we'll we'll see another one of those transactions before the season starts this year. All right, Marty. Enjoy. What, do you have time off? I noticed that every one of these national guys, every one of the TSN media moguls, they wait till July 2nd, and then they go to a cottage in Canada. Is that part of the job? Is that what you got that planned? No, because uh, Rive has that plan. Craig Rive has gone for six weeks now to his cottage up North Bay, and I got to fill in as many dates on the instigators uh, as I can because Rivs has taken his, uh, you know, his family back. So Rivs is on that plan. He's on the media mobile plan. I'm on the media that keeps working throughout the summertime plan. So yeah, I'll be uh, with PD most of the month of July and August, and. And then September comes around again, and there you go. We're back. All right. Well, very good. Enjoy the uh, the fourth. Happy belated Canada Day, and then uh, enjoy all the summer as you get it. Absolutely, it should be a great night for fireworks tonight, and uh, uh, yeah, and everybody have a good fourth and safe fourth, and enjoy the weekend. All right. Thanks, Marty. Okay. Thank you, Marty Baran, with Jeremy White this morning. Um, one. Day off for the 4th of July tomorrow. I'll be back with you on Friday. And uh, hopefully we'll have some uh, Sabre news by then. You know, maybe we'll get a call. Hey, Sabres are uh, making a trade. You got to get in. You got to get to work. So hopefully there's a scenario where maybe me or somebody else is uh, talking to you tomorrow. Um, If that happens, it'll probably be because the Sabres have done something very important. Uh, Trade or uh, it would have to be a blockbuster, I think. But that could happen. Ristolainen trade would be the thing. So, we'll see. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. Catch it on demand at WGR550.com. For you NASCAR fans, stay tuned. Pit Reporters is coming up next right here on WGR. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? 
Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.